Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. <laughs> That's awesome. And welcome to the Pandora podcast. Again, <laughs> this is Dr. Kevin Gutaro, my co-host, Dr. Melissa Katie. Hello. Like- I ghosted in like a virus, didn't I? You did. You didn't even see me coming. <laughs> Well, we we thought we'd start off not necessarily talking about what I talk about all the time, which is the pandemic, but the pandemic. And um, there are just so many things that are evolving. Um, do you want to, I guess for me, this last week, it's been a taking it seriously. Uh, I think we're the first ones to try to not necessarily minimize what viruses or infections can do, but we also appreciate the importance of not overreacting and being mindful and, and keeping your wits about you so that you make good choices. And I know you've had some uh, changes too on how you're really seeing things evolve now. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So it, it, it's been really interesting because um, my, my wife's actually a physician and she, when we were in residency, she was actually doing a research project on SARS. Um, it just kind of coincided because she was on home leave because of one of her kids was born, blah, blah, blah. So she's had this interest in sort of viral pandemic since then. Uh, she ended up actually contracting H1N1 when it came out. And, she, it, and so this, this started surfacing and she has been following it pretty aggressively. And, and me being me, I was like, ah, okay, whatever. Don't worry about it. Then we also have family in China. And they ended up getting trapped. Um, they were actually on holiday. So they left China, they were on holiday in India. And then the, the airline just canceled their tickets, didn't even tell them. So they were, they were in the middle of India. And they're like, Oh, what are we gonna do now? They ended up they have a house in Portland. So they flew to Portland, and then they were stuck and they couldn't get back to Shanghai, which is where where they were. And um, so we were sort of living the China experience through them because they're, the, you know, they're business owners and they're trying to do all the video teleconferencing, everything that we're trying to do now, they were already doing. And we were talking about the lockdown because we had, you know, had all this stuff happen at the same time. There was some, some personal tragedies and things and, you know, trying to figure out how you do all this stuff. And, uh, and then to watch the China experience and hear it because they're, they're directly involved in healthcare in China. And the, what was occurring is like, holy crap, this is unprecedented. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, I knew it was, I'm like, it's going to get here. It's going to get here. But I have this kind of weird thing until it actually gets proximal to me. Like it doesn't, doesn't fully hit. I'm just like, I know it's going to come, you know, I think we're ready for it or whatever. But last week at the beginning of the week, I saw that graph on the social distancing aspect. The, and it was the N plus one, the difference between one day. And the, the importance of that graph is because this is an exponential growth curve. Mm-hmm. You can't comprehend that. Like I, you, you, the, the brain just can't, you, you can think about it and you can say, oh yeah, that, that means this and it doubles. And if it doubles, it doubles, it means this. But, but to, for me, at least I had to see, I had to see that visual. And once I saw that, I was, holy crap, this is a big deal. Right. Uh, and in our particular household, that's when we, um, 
we, we fully aligned together, I would say as husband and wife, and we're like both in agreement, like, all right, we're going to, this is what we're doing. We don't care what the school's going to do. We'll probably keep the kids out. But luckily a day later, the, the, the schools here got canceled for two weeks and now until April 28th. Um, and then we really instituted social distancing. Our friends, my, you know, my kids are like, oh, my friends are meeting up. And we're like, well, you can FaceTime them, but we, you know, we don't want you out. Right. Uh, you just really shouldn't be doing that. And um, I think that, you know, and then since that time is just kind of following it. And I think at, at this point in time, I'm hoping everybody sees how serious this threat is. Although I know people don't. Right. You know, and this is, uh, I, I think for healthcare, people involved in healthcare and, and really physicians specifically, uh, this is where that knowledge comes in, where um, I don't think people realize just, I, and I'm not trying to panic anybody, but this is serious. And if you're not actually honest about the seriousness, it, it doesn't mean, it means we can't respond appropriately. And we need to recognize that this is a serious situation. Is the world going to end? No, but the world's going to change. Right. Uh, and it's going to change quite a bit and, and the effects of this are going to last not for weeks, but months and months and months, if not years. So I don't right. know what your, your experience has been. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's been interesting because I had been working in a hospital um, outside of Austin. And uh, so about four weeks worth in a hospital setting, dealing with a lot of ICU patients, not necessarily anyone that specifically was known to be infected with the coronavirus. Um, but uh, when I finished that commitment, which was a couple weeks back, I and things were evolving with this, um, I, I felt in some ways very fortunate that I'm, there's, it's a mixed bag because part of me felt a little guilty because I'm getting called to go work in that hospital. I'm not gonna specifically say where, but um, here in Texas and uh, fairly big cities, um, and there's a part of me that feels grateful that I'm no longer an employed person that feels compelled to have to, uh, fulfill my duties as an employee. And being that I'm independent, I can pick and choose the work I want to do based on whatever reasons I feel fit. Um, so I've had this huge moral dilemma within me to part of me, I think it's this, I don't know what it is about this, the helper in you when you're in a, the medical profession. And I don't mean just physicians, I mean, nurses, anyone that's been used to helping, stepping up, there's a guilt you feel for not being part of that, that role to help people. Um, but the re part of the reason that I don't want to put myself in that situation is is not because I don't want to be there and help and use my skills to, to do, you know, for the greater good, but there's these issues, these moral dilemmas that we're facing. And I know because of people that are in on the front line right now that would rather be home and are doing cases that have already been suggested by guidelines and the American society of anesthesiology based on CDC guidelines, all the other things put together. And they're saying not to do, not necessarily elective. That was the big wording last night. I listened to the webinar, the town hall meeting from the American Society of Anesthesiologists. And they were saying it's more about um, non-essential because there's a really a gray area there when it comes to elective cases. I mean, there could be someone with cancer that could have impending doom that it technically is elective, 
but it's a little bit more essential because of if they don't get it done within the next 30 days, there could be some major catastrophic issues for certain organs or whatnot. So there's a real big gray area and I already know that the work that's being probably asked of me is going to be involving outpatient surgery centers that are still, despite the recommendations, strong recommendations to cancel all elective surgeries, they're still being done. And the worst thing about this is that some of these well invested by even medical professionals, these high-end surgery centers, and I'm not calling out all of them, there's, there's a select few, but there's definitely, there's stuff definitely out there for right now, is that there is a lack of understanding of the filters that are required to keep themselves from contaminating the machines internally that would basically be delivering potential virus to future patients. And these are things that not to freak everyone out, um, but there are some places that are not fully aware of those types of filters um, that can be put in place to minimize. Doesn't always mean 100%. You know, most of those HEPA filters are like 99.9% .9 um, uh, eliminate, you know, viruses, bacteria, and whatnot. But anyway, that's, that's my biggest concern is that I'd be putting myself in a predicament. It doesn't solve the problem. Um, but for me to sit there and think, I feel compelled to do the case because everyone's expecting it, but yet I don't have the proper gear, especially if I don't have an N95 mask, that this person who's 70 years old, but still getting a procedure that really shouldn't be getting this elective or non-essential surgery done. Um, I just, I, I feel for my colleagues that feel pressured in those situations. Um, yeah, it's, hey, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. And these, these, these institutions and facilities should be called out. And, yeah. Uh, for for a number of different reasons, because I, I do like the word non-essential. I think that's better because if you have someone, someone has a crushed hip, right? And you're going to do a fixation or, or something that is technically elective, but in the same token, if you can get them up moving again and out of the hospital, that becomes a, a semi-urgent procedure versus some, you know, a, some ridiculous now, a knee arthroscopy for somebody with knee pain or, or even a spine fusion uh, for somebody with back pain. Those are elective procedures that don't need to be done. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, your, 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 your words of I can't lack of awareness of the filters. I think they're fully aware of not of the filters, but they're fully aware that what they're doing is they should not be doing is, but all they can see is the dollar signs. And, and, and this really brought me to home the other day. Cause I started calling around in my regional area. Cause I was looking for, I wanted, I wanted to know what they're doing mm -hmm. because there's this talk in, in, from a multiple different things and people may get pissed off at me, but personally, from an outside of observer, and I've had multiple experience with multiple different healthcare systems, the, the lack of fully invested, engaged leadership on healthcare systems on a good day is, is shocking. And mm -hmm. when you have a crisis situation, it, it, this is what you see. You get, you, there's nobody driving the ship anywhere. And, and so I was curious, is like, well, are people canceling elective cases? Because we shouldn't be doing these things. Every, right. every ASC... So ambulatory surgery center for people who don't know, which are standard, you know, supposed to be day of surgeries, you go in and you go out that day. That could basically become an ICU facility or at least a ventilated a vent facility if we get things, if, if things go the way they're projected to be. Right. Where, where we're going to need a lot of vents and we're going to need, a, and um, 
and that's important because there are certain people that if you get them on these vents and support uh, their respiration for a given amount of time, they can recover. And if you don't have it, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, that's criminal to me. And the other part that just kills me. So I don't know. So I know Texas, I'm, I'm, I think Texas is a little behind the curve on, mm-hmm. on calling out like statewide levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but here in Oregon, if I learn of a facility is still doing elective procedure, I will call them out because we've told the restaurants to close. So what we've done now is we're saying, hey, you restaurant owners and you service, service providers who are many times, you know, are trying to do the best they can, but they're living at a, a, a much more distressed level. Like their, their income is a lot different than a healthcare provider and certainly a healthcare CEO. And we're asking them to sacrifice for the greater public good. And right. these facilities aren't doing that. Right. It's that makes it is absolute flat out greed. It is a violation of a Hippocratic oath. And it just is absolutely disgusting to see that type of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone should really appreciate and understand this, this nuance, invisible virus, the potential for exponential growth, not only within, within minutes, hours, and days in one individual, but the way it can rapidly exponentially spread throughout the world. I mean, the medical profession should be the first ones to be the one to implement that type of leadership. And, um, you know, you're right. I mean, there, there is a, I guess my passive approach to it right now is not willing to accept the work to to put myself in that predicament. Um, But a more active, perhaps more brave approach would be to literally confront them and demand closure. Um, until we get some sense that this this peak is you know we've gotten over the the hump and in a declining numbers at least uh before we even consider but you know there's there's horrible things um you know if we can't get the morals and ethics of this situation accomplished on the front end as medical professionals then what we're going to end up being like is in italy where the moral dilemmas will be of a totally different nature and will be of who's going to die versus who gets the respirator or a yep. ventilator. No, absolutely. Uh, the other thing that I was hearing um, uh, from a from a, a major metropolitan area, uh, who again high volume these these institutions, these business factories, you know, driving people through uh, with 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 you know basically procedural based whatever, uh, seeing seeing people as as widgets to to profit from. Um, you know, there again from the from a from a federal standpoint, we've had some <laughs> dramatically weak leadership, and again, nobody's giving guidance. And so, um, when the CDC is kind of waffling around on their guidelines and changing the guidelines, not because the virus has changed, but because they realize that we don't have the protective equipment, mm-hmm. and so they're saying, "Well, we don't have N95 gas, so you can use it." And, and they're not saying that because it's a better choice; it's because there isn't anything else. Right. And to have healthcare CEOs and administrators saying, well, the CDC guideline says you don't need that. So why are you complaining that you need an N95? And to that, I'm like, okay, well, here, here what I want to see. I want an administrator on every single working floor. I want an administrator who is in those ICUs for every intubation. I want mm-hmm. them to be exposed using the exact same equipment or less mm-hmm. than anybody else on those front lines. And let's see you have that same conversation of what's appropriate and safe and, and, and whether or not it, it, we should be screaming for more PPE. Um, yeah. it, it, it's just, it's just, it, yeah, I don't want to get too mad about it, but. Well, you know. I, 
I think, I mean, you're looking at someone right now, myself personally, who's been just recently doing anesthesia, feeling disinclined to be part of helping people in need because of the lack of preparation and lack of equipment and supplies to protect myself who could be wiped out of this equation. I mean, I'm fairly young and healthy, but there's no guarantee. And or the fact I'd be put under quarantine for 14 days if I did get some type, you know, of exposure to the coronavirus. You know, this is something that's, this is a real issue. And um, unfortunately, we have to learn the hard way that you have to be prepared for these things and, and do, the, do the right thing and be prepared for these things and not, you know, after the fact realize, oh, well, we should have done this differently, so. Uh, and there's there's definitely the fixing fixing the blame thing that can happen later when we when we can point out the multitude yeah. of the favors. But what, right this time, what we need to be doing is fixing the problem, right. and that requires that requires everybody to make sacrifices. And it and it, it certainly doesn't mean that for healthcare workers out there to be exposing them using inadequate protection uh, for somebody else's for something that doesn't need to be done. Right? right. No, you would go off and if there was a, some, someone who was who was crashing and yeah. you needed to innovate them and you knew they were going to die and it was a life or death scenario, you would do it. Like I would right. do it. You would probably do right. it. You know, you wrap a bandana around your head or a sock or something. Yeah. And like, well, yeah. you know, it does not work, but you would yeah. do it. But someone telling you to do it so that you can go do again, a knee arthroscopy or, a, or, or, or some ridiculous thing that is completely non-essential. Right. Uh, it, that's that's criminal behavior in my book right and it's not just i'm not just speaking of myself it's that other part if you keep putting people I mean, people whether you have a regular breathing tube or a little airway device called a laryngeal mask airway which they're highly suggesting not using if you're going to have to manipulate the airway for several reasons but that could be another discussion but you know you are hooked up to the machine mm -hmm. And so if we're allowing all these different people, regardless if they show symptoms or not, but they're basically providing virus to the machine and they're not using those filters, then I feel like I'm, I'm doing something to harm the next patient. And it's not just about that patient, it's everyone after. And so that's why the whole supply chain issue with having these filters and having, you know, just the ethical approach to this is that if you are going to continue to do some cases you've got to have the filters in place because these machines are being ex exposing to everybody else well and, and on, a, on a broader scale outside of anesthesia I've, yeah. I've seen uh you know people being said that that hospitals are telling them not to wear a face mask when hmm. you know because unless you know that the, the patient's infected then don't use a face mask because you're going to cause panic well it's not <laughs> nothing wrong with wearing it. There's nothing wrong with wearing a face mask. And, and the, the way to think about this, about this epidemic is not, uh, I'm wearing a face mask to protect myself, but mm -hmm. particularly from a, from a healthcare worker standpoint is I'm wearing a mask to protect my patients mm -hmm. and, and be able to have that discussion and say, well, why are you wearing masks? Do you think I'm infected? No, I don't think you're infected, but I'm seeing everybody every day and I'm wearing this mask to protect me, to protect, to protect, help protect you from me. Simply yeah. because we know there's asymptomatic carriers and this is, you know, this is a mask, which other than N95 masks, they're really designed to protect others from, from the individual wearing them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's just, it just drives me crazy is that we're not doing, 
well, I shouldn't say there are, there's some heroic examples that you're seeing, but you also see the downsides too, where people are doing less than heroic actions for the completely wrong reasons. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, you know, the things that when I was watching that, that webinar yesterday, I mean, I know I'm focusing a little bit on anesthesia, but that's where a lot of the activity is still, still going. Um, there's, there was a, there were a lot of people concerned about just the environments that they're working in and, and being prepared for those things. And, and we're only at the beginning of that, this, this curve, at least we don't know for sure. I mean, none of us can pre predict the future, but there was a really interesting video, not related to this webinar, but earlier that day that I saw from a PhD that was trying to really drive home the point that this started with one virus, <laughs> like po possibly one virus organism <laughs> that has projected itself around the globe because of our many ways that we can circulate things a lot quicker and within a short period of time. So I think it's, it's, it behooves all of us to really, really let that sink in that this is, this is serious. If he can do that to this point now, just imagine what's going to happen down the road. So yeah, we all need to stay home and I'm staying home. I'm quarantining myself. I know you are. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, we're isolating or not. Isolating. Yeah. Under formal distancing, formal isolating, <laughs> physically distancing ourselves. Yeah. Um, I've seen, I've seen way more neighbors than I usually have just because everyone's getting outside to walk. Well, that's the fastest way you get people out of their houses. You tell them you shouldn't leave your house. Right. Yeah, that's right. Right. First day we told our kids that they couldn't leave the house. They're like, well, we want to go for a walk. And I'm like, well, you guys can go to a walk together. And they did. I'm like, I don't know the last time they went for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the moment you tell a human they can't do something they want right. to <laughs> fight against it goes right away but yeah, yeah it, it's it's been it's been interesting and and we're definitely um we, have, we haven't seen anything yet i think that's the other thing i've been using an analogy of like a tidal wave and you know you don't see a tidal wave coming what you see is the tide go out and you say something looks different here and once you see that tide go out, you know, you could, if you're sitting around waiting, well, maybe or maybe not, there's going to be a tidal wave. By the time you see it, it's too late. Yes. And in this situation, uh, in, in this particular situation, we have actual data because we have China and we have Italy and we have those other countries that we can sort of model and extrapolate from. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, again, not, I'm not, not trying to panic anybody, but uh, you got to take this seriously. This is, this yeah. is not something to, to goof around with. Well, the thing is that everyone can implement the ba basic precautions and, you know, washing your hands thoroughly, you know, being aware of what you're touching. I mean, I think people don't realize all the various surfaces that they touch and mm -hmm. um, keeping a distance. And, you know, they, I know they've been giving the six feet as their the guidance. But uh, but I, I did want to mention to you, Kevin, that uh, my husband gave, because my example of one virus spreading across the world wasn't really good for... Uh, non-medical um, that was his suggestion did not try to explain it the way I just did um, but that it's more like a brush fire and that it starts super small but it can become a mammoth fire later on and that it's it it doesn't it can exponentially grow from something super small um, and to respect it in that way but I figured the fire uh, 
Oh, we, we all love you might fire like. is awesome. We, we love fire. <laughs> There's all fire is wonderful thing, you know, the science of fire, but yeah. And that's true. And it's even worse when you're unprepared, right? When you have a lot yes. of dead wood and brush and stuff that hasn't been cleared away and you lack, you're, you're lacking effective equipment and uh, you haven't really paid attention to it for a long period of time. Um, yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting. And we, and we keep you keep fueling it with a whole bunch of young kids that don't know that they're carrying it at like the beach, and they just you know, <laughs> just keep going. And yeah. yeah, and that's that's you know, and the the long and short of it is is if you're healthy, you are at significantly less risk than if you are unhealthy. But the problem is we don't know, you know, even if it's, if it's one person out of a hundred, even 500, you want to take that risk that, and then here's, here's the other thing. So then you have particularly have a bad case and then you need a ventilator. And if you had that ventilator, you would actually be able to survive. We'd vent you for what is it? I mean, it's a long time on the vents, like a week or longer on a vent. But if you do and your body can recover, we can get you off unless there's no vents available. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's, and, and, you know, that's the part about flattening the curve that I'm wondering if non-medical people don't quite get. The fact is, is we're going to get infections. We know we're going to get infected. We know the vast majority of infections are mild, but when you have, you know, a million people infected, 1% of a million people is a lot. And we don't have enough ICU beds for that, for that. I mean, we don't, we're not even close to that number mm-hmm. of ICU beds that we really need. So, right. and I think that's part of what the country, the government and this is just through hearsay through the town hall webinar last night was just once they realize the total number of beds and where these numbers are going, it really struck home that we're not prepared to handle this kind of catastrophe. So we have to minimize that load. Um, you know, unless, you know, for some reason someone can come up with a disposable, you know, personalized inexpensive ventilator that you can just turn on and give, just basic breath so that you don't have to have someone manually ventilating, ventilating them for a week because you don't have a ventilator. I mean, that's the only other option. Um, but you probably need a little bit more sophisticated ventilating setting, ventilator settings for some of these patients. But um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that uh, we're all starting to realize uh, how dire this could look if we don't stay home. Yeah. And that's just on the health end. <laughs> we haven't talked about everything else that's involved. <laughs> yeah. 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 Crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we somehow talked about the, the pandemic for about 35 minutes. Um. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't, I don't, again, don't want to scare anybody, but you just, you want to be, you want to be seriously cautious about what's happening right now. You know, any, any, when people are shutting things down or saying things we want to shut down, it's not, not that people don't understand the economic consequences. People understand the economic consequences, but if you want to have, you know, you, you know, seeing death rates of thousands of people in a day, do nothing and, and we'll have it. And again, the vast majority of the country probably won't die, but you're going to probably know somebody does. Um, right. It's, this is serious stuff. Right. And it, and it may be some of the healthcare workers that will no longer be able to help out for the future, which will change. We already have, you know, not enough people to do a lot of the work out there that needs to be done. So, um, and I just found out an eye doctor friend of mine had to close her practice because she can't sustain the practice. So it's shut down in uh, indefinite for right now. We're not sure. Um, But yeah, it's, there's some, 
people know the consequences financially, but sometimes doing the right thing is making those hard decisions. Absolutely. And then they're hard decisions. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about the pandemic again on an upcoming episode. Um, but for now, I, I think it's no better time than to say what Kevin always says. Be well. I've changed that though. Oh no. Stay well. No, now it's uh, stay well and socially distant. Oh, that one's good. I like that. (laughs) I second that. (laughs) See you next time. Thank you for joining us today on the Paindora podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five-star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at paindora.com.